You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. In this interview, Raoul speaks to his longtime friend and mentor, Kirill Sokoloff, chairman and founder of 13D Global Strategy and Research. For years now, Raoul and Kirill have been spotting holes in the financial system. And now that these holes are finally leaking, they take a detailed look at whether the dam will break. They discuss the COVID-19 pandemic and its potential consequences on monetary policy, investing, and geopolitics. It's a fascinating conversation, and we hope you enjoy. Carol, fantastic to see you. You're in the Bahamas, quarantining yourself, and I'm here in Little Cayman. I mean, truly extraordinary times. I mean, one thing I've got to give you credit for is, is you know, you and I have spoken over the years, and even in the last time that we spoke, you had been warning people about some of the incredible imbalances, whether it's liquidity, whether it's the problem with corporate debt, and even, you know, I know even in the past, you've warned about pandemics and the seriousness of this. So you've been an extraordinary resource for your clients and for many people who rely on you as the source of truth and thought. Um, so, you know, well done so far for calling so much right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, it's a tragedy. It's incredibly painful to watch. Probably the most painful thing I've ever had to watch it's going to get so much worse. People who've spent their lives building a business or building a small savings and now watching it disappear. Uh, people who are indexed to a bear market. Uh, I just have so much compassion. I'm so sad for what's happening. And it's, uh, it was unavoidable. You just can't get people to move the sidelines. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. So I'm, I'm deeply compassionate and feeling very humble that I've managed to come through this okay. Yeah, I mean, it really is hard. I mean, it's affecting, you know, all of us, our friends, our family, everybody. And it was that awful situation where the world was weak anyway, economically. We had some big structural, some big structural issues as well. And then the virus came and that combination was like a nuclear bomb. Well, I started uh, writing last summer. I wrote a piece saying, are we entering uh, a time that could be called the crash of 19 or the crash of 20? And it was clear that we were heading for some big crisis. We had identified uh, global tourism as a very weak link. It's 10% of global GDP, employs 320 million people, and it's very discretionary, advertising as well. And years ending in nine, for some reason, seem to be when bubbles peak. 1929 stocks, 1969 stocks, 1979 commodities, 1989 uh, uh, Japan, 1999 IT, 2008, okay, I'll give you one year. So I was looking for this, and all it needed was a catalyst, but it certainly didn't need something this awful and this horrible. And uh, back in 1997, I read a book called Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett. And uh, if you read that book, you will you'll really take pandemics seriously. They have a chapter on... Uh, uh, Marburg virus, and it was the most contagious disease ever found and would kill people instantly. Uh, they found it in Marburg, uh, Germany. I believe it came out of Africa. I read this book 25 years ago. So we started in 2001 planning, and we followed uh, epidemics, pandemics. We had a portfolio to invest in as a hedge for something like this. Not that you ever want to make money off it, but you're advising your clients to have some sort of insurance. 
And the, the lesson, of course, that we've all learned is that you have to just shut off totally and completely as quickly as you can. And the devastation that this is going to cause economically is something that the imagination just balks at. And if you add to that this burden of debt, which is 250 trillion, which has been another huge bugaboo of mine, we tried to solve the problem of debt with more debt. The last time we did that was the 20s. And of course, the, uh, the junk bond market has, uh, the distressed debt market has doubled in the last uh, week or so. And uh, the problem isn't so much the stock market, although that's a major factor. I mean, it's down, what, 30% of GDP in the last couple of months, but it's the credit markets. And how are you gonna get money to companies that need it to survive? Uh, and how to get money to people who are laid off. And we haven't even begun to see all this. We haven't even begun to see how it's going to play out. And unfortunately, and I'm not partisan at all when I say this, Trump is a bull market president. He's not a bear market president. He doesn't have the tools. And he had around him a bunch of people who were cheerleaders. So as always happens in a bear market, it's too little, too late. You don't understand the severity because you came from a place of immense complacency and uh, excitement and uh, the greatest economy ever will become the worst economy ever. And that brings me to a theme of mine I've been thinking about for a long time, having invested in markets for so long. You go from one extreme to the other. So we had the highest interest rates in the history of capitalism in the early 80s, which I uh, was one of the few people to capitalize on. I wrote a book about it. Then uh, you had uh, you know, greatest economy ever, now worst economy ever. But what I've been focusing on is too much liquidity, free money. What's the opposite of that? Shortage of liquidity. I think we even talked about it last July when we had our, our wonderful meeting in the Adirondacks. And it's the irony of what is viewed as an excess one way becomes an excess the other way. So there are a lot of things that are unraveling. Uh, buybacks, I mean, that is, that is over, over, over. And I think we have to start thinking about a new administration and what they will do. And the market is just beginning to think about what that means. And one thing I think that Biden will do is uh, to try to unify the Democratic Party and try to unify the country. And he may install what was called when Lincoln did it, the team of rivals, meaning he may install people who ran against him in his cabinet. I have no inside information. I don't know any of this. I'm just just guessing what would be pragmatic. So Mike Bloomberg as Secretary of State or Secretary of the Treasury, that wouldn't be so bad, right? Uh, and you put Bernie Sanders somewhere in the environment. So uh, everybody would feel a little bit, a little bit better. But what happened over the last 40 years is, and we talked about this in last July, is that capital was taking a greater and greater share of the economy and labor was suffering. So there'll be significant changes in that direction and very significant regulation. Markets may be free again. The ETFs may be no more triple leveraged ETFs. These distortions that go on are insane. You must change it. And that's what happens when you have these excesses. The backlash swings very hard in the other way. So whoever will be regulating Wall Street will come down really hard and kick a lot of these things out, which will give us normal markets again. And maybe we'll get back to a time when we can actually invest in a story on fundamental analysis. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> Instead of you know, trading the S&P. Uh, I mean, so there are some bright signs here on the other side of this, but that's a long ways away, I'm afraid. It's going to take What's your perspective on how long this kind of rolling shutdown has to take? Because what concerns me is the US is very far behind. The UK and Australia are far behind. Brazil looks like it's now starting to go up the exponential curve. Yeah. Africa now got it. I, I worry that this is a much longer event than the optimists hope for. They're hoping for a 
eight weeks and it's all over event. What's your perspective on all of this? Well, the, uh, the head of health of Singapore uh, just said the global health system is only as strong as its weakest link. So I read this article in the New York Times by a, a medical historian, and it really grabbed me. And uh, the word quarantine comes from 600 years ago when in Venice, if you came on a ship or you came from another city state, you would be put in quarantine for 40 days and you could not get into that city state unless you could prove you were healthy. And if you couldn't, then you'd be put in quarantine. So what I fear is just like we have airline security, what is it, you know, 19 years later, the threat of that is infinitesimal, and yet billions of people have to go through the security mess. What is it gonna be now? Are they gonna make us take our temperature? Are we gonna go through, through heat measures? Uh, will we have to have a letter from our doctor? But what is this gonna do to international travel and global tourism? in the best of circumstances. And people study this. They know that these pandemics come in waves. And they all know that in 1918, the pandemic came back in the fall and most of the deaths occurred in the fall. So people are gonna be extremely cautious, but who will be the first country to say all clear? No one will, it's too much risk. So even if it is all clear, no one will have the courage, no country will have the courage to do it. So that means we're gonna be in permanent shutdown. And uh, I just don't know what that means with all this debt, the demographics being what they are, and people in a frightened, panicked mood. So they're very easy for them to take the next step, which is just to panic and, and sell financial assets. So we need very strong leadership now. And Napoleon said, a leader must define reality, but inspire hope. So there is hope, but we must be very clear on defining reality. What's very interesting is the, um, the premier of the Cayman Islands was speaking yesterday, and he gave a really great speech because he did exactly that. He said, and I'm not usually a big uh, you know, proponent of the, uh, the premier of the islands here, but he came on and said, listen, the situation is worse than we know. There is going to be community spread here on Ireland, even though we've got only a few cases. Um, he said our industries of tourism, financial services are going to be decimated. And he said, and all of you are going to be struggling with work. But, you know, we, we're obviously a hurricane economy. We kind of know how to deal with some crisis. But the point that he raised was really a chilling point. He said, but as a government, we know that we probably cannot let in Americans, Canadians, Brits, or others for a long period of time because we don't know if we're safe. We can control the virus here, but we can't let in foreigners. He said, so that leaves a economic situation where it's not eight weeks, it could be eight months, it could be longer. And he said, the problem is, is the government all the businesses and all of the people run out of money in about three months. And he said, and they don't have the ability to print money. He's like, I don't know what happens. And I thought that was a very honest thing to say because that's a true fact is when you shut down supply, demand and consumption all at the same time, the government can't just print enough money to cover the entire GDP because you destroy, and this has been one of your core points for a long time, is you destroy the monetary system that you built it on. Yeah, that's exactly correct. I have a theory about it all. And I felt for years that the rate of change was unbearable. There are a few people, Ray Kurzweil, Singularity, you know, it's people who can deal with this change and love this degree of change. But for 99.9999% of the world, it was just unbearable. And what happened is that essentially the human species just had a nervous breakdown. That's what's happened. I'm looking at it from a different standpoint. And uh, there's a wonderful quote by Pascal that the hardest thing in the, in the world and the cause of all the problems is that man can't sit quietly in a room by himself. 
Well, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Here we are. And we're going to be thinking and pondering. Why did, why did this happen? Why, did, why weren't we prepared? Why were we rushing in this direction? Why were we, we so mindless? And I think it will start to hit a lot of people. And I think there's a spiritual component to it that as well, which is, is going to be very hopeful and good. But um, out of the worst tragedies come some of the best changes. But the pain is going to be agonizing. So here's something I wanted to pick your brains on, because you're always attuned to this kind of thing, is Trump has been referring to it now as the China virus, which I think is very aggressive in this time when people need to come together, because this is a serious global issue. And I draw parallels, as you have done as well, that this is very similar to the end of the 1920s and into the 1930s, and we knew that led to war in the end. I, um, you and I both talked about this before together. This, I don't like this new rhetoric. It concerns me. He plays the blame game. That's his strategy. And we don't need someone to play the blame game. We need someone to look at this honestly, tell the truth about it, and deal with the harsh reality. This is not the time to be involved in the blame game. But he's not that kind of president. He's a bull market president. Although I do imagine that the global supply chain issue, something we also talked about back in July, that's going to change permanently in some ways because people realize that globalization, with all its benefits, had some tremendous downsides. And the fact that you don't have control of your own goods and services is one of them. What I don't understand is how America could have entered a trade war with China when China produces 98% of the antibiotics that America uses. So you ask a question, was that not known by those who were negotiating and started it, or did they not care? But I just can't even deal with how incompetent that is. But clearly, supply chains are going to shift. Anything that's critical on health is going to be shifted. But these things are going to take a long time to, to, to take place. It's just reaffirming the end of globalization, reaffirming by local, by national, um, reaffirming uh, the world just shuttering down into, into countries and nationalism. Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, if you want to invest, you just, as we've been doing, recommending for our clients is areas of, of China where they are starting to spend a lot of money and the same in the United States. Uh, but it's not a good development because when the world starts to splinter like that, it becomes everyone thinking about itself when we should all come together. And there's still a hope. Uh, I think there's a global search for the solution in terms of a vaccine. And I, I know that scientists are working together and that we'll be sharing on it. Although Trump reportedly wanted to move uh, is a company from Germany to the United States. Uh, that's not the right attitude. We really, we need to try to keep the lines of communication open. And I'm hoping with the new administration that that will be restored to a certain extent. Yeah, it's, the other thing that worries me within this is the kind of financial system that we know. I mean, again, it's something you and I have talked about for a long time. You know, based on debt and the and the leverage that's within the system and how it works, feels like that's going to be sacrificed in this too. Which is, in the end, probably a good thing. But we have to take a tremendous amount of pain to delever the world. There's a huge amount of leverage in the system because everyone was trying to squeeze out a profit or getting some kind of a return. The pressure to generate profits was massive. And you had to use leverage to do it. And when it's all said and done on the other side of this, speculation and leverage are going to be really dirty words. A lot of things are going to be dirty words. If you just took the last 40 years or more importantly, the last 10 years and you just turned it upside down, that's the way the world's going to be. And uh, I remember very well, there's a new biography, by that I mean the last five years, on Jesse Livermore. And let me just spend a minute on him. 
Yeah, he was a great speculator, a great short seller. Uh, it was the earthquake of 1906, and he shorted this U.S. stock market, knowing that the insurance companies would have to withdraw money from the stock market. But for some reason, the stock market kept going up. <laughs> you know, this does happen. And he basically had to cover his shorts, and he, he ran out of capital. And E.F. Hutton, who he worked for, uh, said, OK, I'll give you some more money. And this, it worked this time. But by the time 29 came, he was really prepared. And he had a game plan. He had a, a huge number of, of uh, people out in the, uh, in the hinterlands who were saying that the US economy was slowing down. He played it beautifully. He shorted right, he covered right, he shorted again. And at the end of the crash, he had uh, he was in the top 10 wealthiest people in the world. And he, he closed all his shorts, beautiful. But by the mid-1930s, he was bankrupt and shot himself. That's a very important story. And um, why did that happen? It happened because the, the game changed. It wasn't the same game that he knew. And the game is going to change on the other side. So the players who were successful in the last decade, last 30 years, it may just be a totally different game. And I'm not sure what it is. I think it's reasonable to think that equities are going to be returning to the mean and uh, there'll be maybe fake rallies and people will buy it and then short it and it'll be whipsawed around. Um, you know, the old thing about 2932 was it wasn't a crash where people lost money. He was trying to buy the many false bottoms. I don't know whether it's going to be that way. I just have an intuition that the world is going to change and we have to change our game plan. So I'm less and less inclined to speculate, less and less inclined to, you know, bet on a rally here. I mean, yes, there will be a rally if, if real rates come down, which the Fed must do. Or, you know, you bet on the rally in the oil price. I'm just not inclined to do that. I'm sticking with my original core strategy, which I've been working on for three years longer is actually in some cases in gold and gold mining shares and not playing around with other things and get distracted from the main arena. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, myself personally, um, for this earlier phase, you know, I've, I've been uh, long gold like you have. I closed recently, but I'm still a big bull of gold over the long run. Um, I have obviously been in the US dollar, which was one thing that I think is the final path of the breakdown of the system is the dollar is too strong, not too weak, that brings the system down. And the other one that you and I have chatted about over dinner was uh, Bitcoin and new cryptocurrency world, where there's a potential for a new world to be built. Because when I look at it, it's like the world's biggest hive mind of people building an alternative financial system, payment system, commercial system. Right. At some point, you can move away from one into this new world. And I find that tremendously exciting. And I think gold does extremely well in that transition from the breakdown of the old world into the building up of the new world. So, you know, I am very optimistic at the end of this, but it's just the amount of pain we have to take before we get there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And that was a fantastic call you made uh, last uh, July on the dollar which is a real contrarian uh, position. <laughs> and uh, uh, it really kudos to you on that call. Thank you. Uh, and you're right, if it keeps going up, and I guess if you break through 104 on the dollar index and it's real, not a fake breakout, it goes to 120 and then all hell breaks loose. That would be a disaster. Um, can the Fed pre prevent that? Yeah, I like Bitcoin. I have a friend very close friend who's advised me very well on Bitcoin. Of course, I didn't buy it when it was 200 when he told me. And then it went up and he sold just before it started to trade on the futures at 20,000. Then it came back to four or 5,000. He said, I'd buy it. I said, of course, I didn't buy it. Anyway, so I finally said, I'm just going to take a position this year just to get my feet wet. And of course, I got killed. Um, it's a tiny position, but you have to laugh. Uh, but at least I've got a physician on that I can add on to. But I, I love Bitcoin. And I've, I read this book called The Bitcoin Standard, which is a great yeah, book. Yeah, amazing, read it. amazing it's book. a really, really good book. And it helps you understand 
why it's so special, it's so real. And uh, this new rising generation loves Bitcoin. And they're going to be the ones who will be running the world in not too long from now. Because they don't trust the world that they come into. Because, you know, the, the millennial generation saw the 2008 collapse. They kind of finished university or were around university age. They were, they were kind of born around the, uh, or were just young when they saw the 2000 collapse. They don't trust anything anymore. And this is something they can trust. And right. as you know, our game is all built on trust. Without trust, there's nothing. And that's, you know, that's why gold has a value. Gold has always had a value because we trust it. But other things we lose trust in. Yeah, and I think when this is all said and done, after the central banks do whatever they're going to do to us, uh, people will want a hard currency. And whatever country does it first will be the most successful, whoever that may be. Um, one thing that's important to talk about here, and that is uh, MMT. Yeah. And QE is not central bank printing. QE is just buying assets, creating an asset bubble. But MMT is literally financing the government. And that is inflationary. It could be hyperinflationary. So we have to be very, very careful that uh, we be on the right side of this because you could go from deflation to inflation overnight. And what was doing extremely well outside of gold in uh, deflation uh, would do horribly in, in inflation. And my study of how inflation arrives is just, is just overnight. It's not, you don't have any warning, it just, just comes. Now, this, this would require uh, an act of Congress. So presumably we would have time to study this. I don't think it will happen this election year. I think it's doubtful and it may never happen, but it's something for us to watch because it changes the landscape dramatically. So the one I'm interested in here is Japan. So Japan is obviously further ahead in the quantitative easing. They own already most of their own bond market and a lot of their own stock market. And I just think, okay, if we're about to go into the worst economic crisis of all of our lifetimes and possibly of the last hundred odd years, the probability of Japan doing something extreme is high and maybe monetizing its entire debt, i.e. a debt jubilee. And I just think, what world is that? What is that? Is that going to be the loss of faith of the yen, finally? Because the yen has you know, been an amazing thing. It's always so strong. And it feels like if they did that, the yen ends up trading, dollar yen ends up going to 200 or 250, which is you know, that inflationary moment where it just goes so quick because the, the trust in the currency is gone. Well, that's exactly what will cause uh, the turn. And it doesn't necessarily have to be MMT to cause loss of faith in the currency. I mean, the U.S. deficit could easily be three trillion. At what point do people lose trust? At what point do foreigners lose trust in owning treasuries and financial assets? At what point? Was the rally in uh, the long end of treasuries, was that the first shot across the bow on this concern? Or was it just um, you know, illiquid markets? Uh, I don't know the answer. But it's interesting you talk about the yen because the Japanese had a massive amount of capital they move around. So if that were to happen, they would be moving capital. And uh, that would be an important signal important thing to watch. So uh, you're absolutely right on that. Yeah, because if you don't have a domestic bond market, then all the capital leaves. Right. It, has, it, has to, it has to go in search of return. So right. it goes elsewhere. So I think people, that's just one of the things that on my horizon for the next few years, that something people wouldn't expect would be that. In Japan, it would make sense to me because they were the first of the demographic bust. So they should be first out on the other side with whatever happens. Now, Japan as a nation, 
you know, with the rise of robotics and the rise of um, different things, they can be okay in it. But at some point, that monetary situation will will become ugly for a while. And maybe they turn to a digital currency or, or whatever. I don't know. But it, I think that's the real Petri dish of an experiment for us. Well, I'm glad you mentioned demographics. Uh, for me, Japan has been the laboratory. And I think we talked about this in July, that in the 90s, everybody was saying Japan was the outlier on long rates and shorting JGBs, when in reality, it was the leader. So I've considered Japan the leader for 20 years. That's why I study it so carefully. And you're absolutely right. Um, they were the first ones to have peak population, the first ones to have uh, peak working population. The Japanese women don't want to marry. They don't want to have kids. It's a baby bust on a scale that you haven't seen. And the rest of the world is heading in that direction. Uh, slowly but surely, the demographics over the next 10 years are the worst since the, I shouldn't make a comparison, I won't, worst in 500 years. And every developed country's adult working population will fall anywhere from 8 to 12 percent between 2020 and 2030. That is a demand shock that this system right now can hardly, it could not even begin to withstand. And then you have the rising generation. The millennials have a much different consumption patterns than their parents. Uh, so you, you got that. And uh, those two things together added to this is very, very deflationary. And that's, that's why uh, if I had to choose between inflation, if I had to choose between hyperinflation or the nuclear winter, I hope I never have to choose. Not that it's up to me to make any choices. How do I invest? I would take the hyperinflation over the nuclear winter, possibly. But the nuclear winter is, is really bad. That just goes on and on and on and on. Remember what Bernard Baruch said? He said, when you're absolutely sure the deflation has run its course, take a trip around the world for a year. Then you come back and you know this is a bottom. Now take a trip, another trip around the world for a year. That might be the bottom. So that's what happens in a, in a debt deflation. I mean, let's just think about, let's just take WeWork as an example. Uh, I don't see how it can survive. And what about all of the uh, offices that it is rented? And then what happens there to the, the landlords who are depending on the rent? I mean, you just look at the interconnectedness and you start to think, and with venture capital basically blasted, a lot of, uh, of office space and buildings were created to house the venture capital boom, which is now over. We've looked a little bit at excess capacity. Uh, you know, we looked at colleges, for example. I think it's uh, uh, some 20% of students at American universities farm, and they pay three times the average of what the American does at a state university. Well, that's that's over. I mean, that's they're not going to be coming anymore. So this is too much capacity relative to the demand at the very time that we're having this pandemic and at the very time we're having a financial crisis. So you put that all together and you just wonder, has the world been planning for too much growth? It just isn't there or won't be there. And then how do you get out of that one? See, and you know, just talking to you, Whopping in my mind, as you will be in yours, is that I just can't see this being a short event, Carol. I, it just looks to me that we've got 1929 to 1933 all over again. That we've got, we've got, you know, as I look at it at the very top level, we've got three huge problems. One is the, the corporate debt bubble. One is the pension crisis and the, all the baby boomers. The other, I think, is this strong dollar issue. These three alone can blow up the world. Then we've got the societal issues, the globalization issue. I mean, this, it's, I've never seen anything like it, even studying history as much as I have and you have. I've never seen cards so stacked against 
discovery that everybody so wants. It feels like it's secular. It feels like it's secular. When we were in uh, Adirondacks in July, we discussed the book, The Fourth Turning. And this is exactly what's going on is exactly the fourth turning kind of thing. Uh, what happens when governments, state governments, aren't able to pay pensions? Uh, you know, th these are the kinds of things that cause huge societal unrest. We have to watch this all very carefully. Um, one thing I think it's important to add about gold is that I say that all roads lead to gold. So if, if everything is fine and, and the Fed reflates and we go about our business and gold will, will do just fine. It's a pure supply demand issue. If there's a banking system, financial crisis, gold will do incredibly well because it's outside of the banking system. If there is a, a debt deflation, gold will do extremely well. So all roads lead to gold. And it's very underowned, misunderstood. And people own gold in the United States in a gold ETF, which is, I mean, I mean, you know, if you're going to get out of paper, you want to get into a hard asset, you're not going to own it through an ETF. Own the real physical thing. And I think we'll see a time come, and we may be seeing it now, where the physical market sells above the paper gold market, as it should. Interesting enough, I've got some friends who own gold companies, gold brokerage companies. Oh. And as gold sold off, as there was a lot of liquidation just for, you know, just for the usual stuff that happens in a bear market, they saw 10 times the amount of new account openings than they've ever seen before. Right, exactly. So the demand for physical gold is very different than the demand for futures um, that in a liquidation. And we've seen that even within the ETF world in lots of things. The physical assets, there was no demand in those. And uh, they're all trading at discounts to NAV. As you say, the likelihood is, is that gold trades at a premium to all of the paper versions of it. Well, you also have been very right on the price of oil. And uh, when uh, Russia uh, withdrew from the production cutback agreement, which was fascinating geopolitically. Amazing. Um, yeah, this has got so much, so many ramifications. Well, let's let's talk first about ramifications for gold. The production costs for gold could be anywhere from $100 to $200 lower, meaning their margins go up even more uh, for, for gold. And, uh, but this is such a geopolitical issue here. So as you know, and it's been proven, in 1986, there was a deal done with the Saudis to increase production. And that took the price of oil from 22 to you know, 8 or 10 or 12, depending on which type of oil it was. I actually it was short oil. And it turned out later that there was a deal between the United States and the Saudis to do this to break the Soviet Union. It was, it was a brilliant strategy. But Putin has said that the greatest geopolitical tragedy in history was the breakup of the Soviet Union. He has a very long memory. So just think about this. Uh, he does not do things without a lot of careful thought. He's very thoughtful. This was done with great thought. And uh, MBS, of course, responded as you figured he would in a macho way by ramping up production. And uh, we think, we may be wrong, but we think the Russians have more staying power than the Saudis. You know, we will see. But shale has no staying power here. So uh, Putin strikes a blow at uh, all the sanctions that were put on Russia. And he also strikes a blow on Saudi Arabia. So it's a win-win it's for him. Now, that's important because if it persists, and oil stays down here, or if indeed the cartel is over. And Gary Schilling, with whom I authored uh, the book in 1982, is inflation ending, are you ready? Always believed that OPEC would fall apart because all cartels do. Well, it's, you know, all right, it doesn't matter. 
that you're 40 years late, that you're right. And uh, the reason why they fall apart is because fringe producers cheat. And then the swing producers get tired of it. And that's when it ends. So I'm not saying this will happen. I'm just saying I'm open to it, that oil prices can stay lower for longer. Now, I'm sure in the Cayman, where you are, where we are here in the Bahamas, lower oil prices is very good. There are a few places in the world that actually benefit from it. So it, it, it's lifting a huge burden on uh, many countries that suffer from, from higher oil prices. But what do you think? The price yeah, so of- I've, I've got... I think Putin is probably the geopolitical genius um, in the world. And I think he looked at the opportunity. Now, there's two ways I think it went. One is that Putin, who is good friends with MBS, may have said, we can play it this way. You can show outrage because Russia essentially is non-dollarized. They've been buying tons of gold. Right. They have no government debt, so they can basically do what they want. And he did that on purpose. So then maybe him and MBS said, why don't we do this? Because we can destroy shale and we'll get a larger uh, share of the market. That's a idea. That's, that would fit because they were high-fiving at the, the G7 exactly. or something, and, right? Yeah, and, I like also, that idea. and also, I think, at the other level, where the level that Putin operates, is he is thinking the U.S. economy is now about to fall apart. It was already weak, and now we've got this virus. And if I blow up shale and the debt market by driving the oil price home, he said he would have thought Trump would have congratulated him for lowering the oil price because Trump thinks it's a a tax break. And Putin's thinking, I've just driven the U.S. economy into the dark ages by just doing this. So it it was kind of a win-win. Trump thought he'd won because he got the lower oil price. MBS knew he had a win in this because you get rid of shale, but Putin had the ultimate win because he won everything. That's my kind of view on it. Yeah, I love that. That that actually makes more sense. Uh, And that's all the more reason to to think it stays low until shale actually, you know, has the coffin, uh, you know, taken and put in the ground. Yeah, because don't forget, in the end, Russia also has a memory of the Russian crisis in 98, 99. Right. And how they didn't, in the end, get the support and the whole thing collapsed. And here's a situation where Putin can almost do the reverse. Right, right. By pulling one of the rugs out of the U.S. economy just at the wrong time. And he's, he's not stupid. He understands how big a part of the U.S. economy shale is. Right, right. Yeah. And also, the very fact that if you drive down the price of oil, the dollar explodes because everyone's short dollars abroad. And yeah. again... Putin doesn't care because he doesn't have a dollarized economy. So it can basically allow the entire world to burn because of the strong dollar. And he wins. It's it's an extraordinary stroke of geopolitical genius, I think. It is. It's incredible. It's incredible. So what do you think? Do you think we've seen, are we seeing the lows or do you think it goes down to 10 or 15 or you don't know? My guess was always 20, but we hit it in, you know, in very short space of time. Yeah. Now it all depends on, okay, how long is this economic situation? And you and I chatting, it's kind of cementing in my mind that it's longer than the market expects. Regardless of, we don't know anything, you and I, we're just trying to put together the jigsaw puzzle. But it feels like it's a longer event. If it's a longer event and the demand for oil isn't there, obviously the shell producers will try and produce as much as they can just for the cash, right. as will the Saudis, as will everybody else, That's because right. there is no demand. So you have to play the volume game. So my guess is, with the global shutdown, what is the price of oil? Is it $10? Is it $8? Is it $5? I don't yeah. know. It could be. Because as you said, if tourism is gone, well, that's all the airplanes. You know, it's a, it's, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, these are so many black swan events compounding on right. top of each other. Uh, it's hard because everything seems possible now. Right. Not impossible. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's why um, not doing too much, in my estimation, is the best. I, how do yeah. I, make, I made my decision, you know, how to be prepared for this, and I'm going to ride it out, um, and we'll see where it all comes out. 
I think, you know, that's exactly the right thing is in the end, it's about self-preservation, preservation of your business that's and right. being able to deal with transition. Um, and um, an old client of mine, when I first started my career, gave me one of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever received, which is he who has cash in a recession is king. Yeah. And another one is in a bear market, he who loses least is the winner. And I look around the world and I look at uh, uh, what's happening to Greenwich real estate or real estate in New York City or, you know, what you thought was a $50 million house or apartment. I mean, maybe it's 10 million, maybe it's 5 million, maybe there's no buyer for it all. Maybe in this conspicuous consumption uh, backlash, no one will want to buy it. It may just, it may be worth nothing. Um, so the wealth that's been created may turn out to have been very ephemeral. And that would be devastating for a lot of people because they spent their life building a fortune. They thought they were very wealthy. Then they turned out, well, maybe, well really, I'm, I may be wealthy, but uh, maybe I'm not so wealthy. But this will get people to focus on different things, perhaps. I think that's right. And I share your optimism about a changing culture. I also think in the end, it's going to prove to people that being an entrepreneur is the best thing you can do. Um, because you're in control of your own income. You take the risk that suits right. you um, and you're not relying on somebody else. I think yes. there is great, there will be great opportunity as if we are right, and this is a secular transition, then the opportunity is going to be everywhere. You just have That's to look right. at them. That's and you right. don't, the one thing you don't look back at is the past. You need to look into the future. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if long distance learning for schools is the way of the future. I mean, video conferencing, I've loved the concept of video conferencing. I mean, who really wants to, I mean, I've traveled so much of my life as you have. I mean, I love to see people face to face, but this is, I mean, I'm seeing you face to face. It's, I mean, sharing a glass of wine might be better, but you know, we're, we're sharing the experience. And uh, this may become more popular, even well, because, if things change. Because, you know, you and I, you know, over a glass of wine have complained that, you know, we love traveling, but it's a lot, it's hard work, it's exhausting. Yeah. And as you said, you know, we can be here over Skype and it's almost like I'm there. I've been to your house. I know exactly where you are and everything else. So it's, it's kind of, it's very familiar to me. I mean, interesting enough this evening, because of the office in Cayman is closed and we're quite a small office in the Cayman Islands, we're having a drinks party tonight online. Nice. Because nice. everyone's at home and kind of locked in their houses. So we said, <laughs> we'll just have a Zoom call and have a bit of a drink party so everyone can have a bit of social time together. And I oh, think that will become relatively normal. I interviewed a friend of mine who runs a family office in Italy. Um, um, and he is quar quarantined in his apartment. And he's like, well, it was my father's 85th birthday. We all had a drinks party online. He said, it's a friend's birthday. We've <laughs> He said, we're adapting to it pretty quickly now. And, you know, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, well, I think there'll be, you know, the old story, the, the wife has complained to the husband, you're always traveling, you're always working, you're never around. Then he retires and she can't wait to get him out of the house. So <laughs> there may be a little bit of, you know, reality here. <laughs> I've got three kids I'm in my house. I'm home tutoring them. <laughs> But uh, so how, are yeah. you, how, are you, how are you personally coping with getting your kids through school? Are you home tutoring or are you doing it online? And how are you, how are you thinking about that? Well, we, uh, I'm in uh, Bahamas and um, my uh, wife and two children are in Lugano, Switzerland. And I took one of them to look at schools in London. And then um, she went back and I came here to do some things. And of course, everything shut down. Uh, so I'm here and they're there. I offered to fly them here, but my wife felt comfortable in Switzerland and they're being long distance learning through the school. And then they have their own tutors for the UK school system. So they're doing a lot of, a lot of home tutoring. <laughs> so I was asking my daughter whether she's going stir crazy. She's getting enough exercise, but, uh, uh, 
anyway, it's human ability to adapt is just extraordinary. Well, and I think you're right. This is going to be their future. The learning that you realize it's so archaic to be in a classroom. Yes, you need social interaction because if not, you can't build societies. But there's other ways of solving for that. Um, exactly. And so that gives a lot of people a different flexibility in terms of how they live their lives, where they live. You can you can I live can... in a place that's cheaper or more suitable to you. You know, th there's a lot of societal change can come um, out of something like this. So you know, I'm even though I'm incredibly pessimistic right now, I'm kind of optimistic. I kind of think the fourth turning is a good thing. Yes, yes, I, I agree with you. And I think the distortions in the free market, we have not had a free market. I mean, certainly ever since the GFC, but going back. And those distortions are gradually going to end, I would think, some of them. And um, it may make markets and investing fun again. Uh, you know, between now and then, when that uh, brave new world begins, it's going to be unbelievable pain. But on the other side, we'll have learned a lot of lessons of things we don't want to do going forward. I think you're right. So, Kirill, I think we will have to see how this develops. I'm definitely going to check back in with you because, you know, I need your brain to uh, bounce ideas off because, you know, we are in unprecedented times and, you know, it's going to take some real thinking here. Yeah, we have to. The important thing is not to listen to the people who were shouting bull market, bull market, and say, well, what do you think now? Listen to the people who call this right, because they might be seeing it more clearly. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Kirill, thank you, my friend. Stay safe in the Bahamas, and I hope the family will locate in Switzerland. Enjoy, enjoy your online drinking tonight. I will do. Okay, bye-bye. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.